Please remain standing and take out your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 45. Our reading this morning will be the first 15 verses. Genesis 45 picks up the story where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers who had sold him into slavery into Egypt. (coughs) Genesis 45, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. You can imagine that was uh, an interesting conversation when his brothers talked with him. Let's pray again before we uh, look at God's word together. Holy Spirit, we ask that um, you, you will descend in a way would grab hold um, of our attention full force and and help us to to understand something more of your forgiveness as well as the forgiveness we show to others in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the middle of a series. Well, I don't know if it's the middle or not, but we're in a series. (sighs) and the doctrine of forgiveness. And we continue um, in the same vein, and that is that nothing is more foreign to sinful human nature, and nothing is more characteristic of divine grace than forgiveness. Uh, The words, please forgive me, and I forgive you, 
have been referred to as three plus three of the hardest words to say with sincerity. Especially, I forgive you. Due to our pride, excuse me, we're sometimes slow um, to grant forgiveness um, to those who seek it, choosing rather to hold on to bitter resentment in order to hold it over the offender as a form of punishment. Unforgiving indebtedness happens in families all the time happens between siblings parents do it to their children children do it to their parents typically adult children because young children are probably the quickest to forgive but adult children that is unforgiving adult children um, sometimes will assume a a kind of um, parental scolding role over their parents is a a kind of weird form of retribution. I've witnessed that before. It's very bizarre, but it happens. A lot of unhappiness and misery is due to, can be traced to, uh, the bitter root of unforgiveness. Those who defiantly, grudgingly refuse to extend forgiveness to the offender. And though a Christian may say the words, I forgive you, to one seeking forgiveness, oftentimes they'll add, um, I have to. That's what I'm called to do while their actions and attitudes speak otherwise. The common response of us is fallen, depraved sinners is to return hurt for hurt, evil for evil. It was William Temple who once said, To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. Genesis 45 is the greatest expression of the return of good for evil in all of Scripture. Okay? Apart from the work of Christ, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of forgiveness in the entire Bible. The story of Joseph. And let, remi- let me remind you again, um, and I say remind when we went through the story of Joseph, it's been four years the story of Joseph is not so much about the faithfulness of Joseph as it is about the covenantal faithfulness of God. Specifically being shown to Jacob through the life of Joseph. 
God's covenantal faithfulness to Jacob, the patriarch, through the life of his son, Joseph. In other words, Moses, the author, isn't trying to paint a portrait of Joseph as as much as he is displaying the glory of God. Providing for us another demonstration of God's faithfulness. And in order to do so, he contrasts the best of Joseph against the worst of his brothers. Now here, to to establish context, to this, the 45th chapter of Genesis, we have to go back 22 years to chapter 37. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to chapter 37 because we're going to skim our way forward back to chapter 45. If you'll notice, in chapter 37, um, Joseph was 17. He was the son of a doting father. Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, who loved Joseph more than his brothers, verse 3. He was the son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, who died while giving birth to Benjamin. Joseph and Benjamin were brothers from the same mother. And in her absence, perhaps, Jacob saw Rachel's eyes every time he looked into Joseph's. He may have resembled his mother. We don't know. He was probably much more lenient with Joseph than he was the other brothers. You know, perhaps they shared secrets together. So at dinner, there would be the occasional nod and wink from Jacob to Joseph and Joseph to Jacob. And what's worse is that Jacob did not hide his favoritism. He noticed he gave Joseph a robe of many colors. That is a long-sleeved, ornamented, decorated robe. A flowing dress coat. The work duds of that day were sleeveless tunics to keep your arms free, enabling you to work. So this this was an extravagant coat, and it basically said to the older brothers, I'm management, you're the labor. It was a mark of honor. It was a statement of exaltation. It was an indicator that he would receive the inheritance of the firstborn, although he was the 11th born. So the result is predictable. The brothers hated Joseph. Jealous, envious, we're told in verse 4, they couldn't even speak to him on friendly terms. Now add to that, Joseph had dreams, and we find out later that they were divinely inspired dreams. And Joseph was not discreet about those dreams. He, he, he came to his brothers one day and he said, hey, I had a couple dreams. Um, in, in the first, notice, um, we were binding sheaves in the field and guess what? My sheaf 
stood upright and your sheaves bowed down. And then I had another dream. Um, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, they were bowing down to me. Now, he didn't interpret the dreams, but they did, and they were correct. That is to say, one day, you, my brothers, and my father, and his wife, probably Leah, will be bowing down before me. The brothers even reported this to Jacob, and even Jacob reproves him a bit, but verse 10, notice, he, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, hides these things in his heart. Hmm, there could be something to this. Verse 11. What's being described in both dreams, again, what's being described in both dreams is God's divine elective choice of Joseph. What is the natural man's instinctive response to divine election. He hates it. He despises it. Natural man loathes God's sovereignty, and he begins to call into question God's purposes, fairness, and justice. Reasonable conclusion? It is reasonable, because it's biblical. Needless to say, there, there is family strife in this, the promised line. Just like we have strife in our families, uh, this strife is magnified. Things only get worse. Within these furious sons, wrath is stirring towards the favored son. And, and notice in verse 2, um, Joseph often served as his father's informant. And we read there that he, he brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, friends, these were rough guys. These older brothers were, were hard and reckless, to say the least. You can go read other portions of Scripture and see some of the things that they were involved in, but a bad report is not surprising. Okay? One day, Jacob approaches Joseph, and he asks this 17-year-old son to go check in on his brothers who were 50 miles away in Dolphin. Go look into the affairs of your brothers. So he goes, as an obedient son, he goes. And while en route, as he approaches that region, they see him from afar, and they say, literally, Verse 19, oh, here comes the master dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these 12 to foot, 15 feet deep pits. What do you think, guys? Oh, I agree. Right? If you, if you want to kill the dream, then kill the dreamer. While they're eating lunch and he's in the pit, they make a compromise among, the, among themselves as they see uh, a group of Midianite slave traders heading their way. So they pull them up, they pull them out, and they sell them off for 20 shekels of silver, and he's hustled down to Egypt. They dip his robe in blood, goat's blood, they take it back home, and they say, Father, uh, can you identify this robe? We found it on the way. 
Jacob breaks and he weeps and he concludes, a wild animal has devoured my son. Meanwhile, down in Egypt, Joseph is, is sold off to one of Pharaoh's officers, a man by the name of Potiphar, and he goes through a series of trials and false accusations, and he ends up in, in, in Pharaoh's prison, and he goes on to interpret, guess how many dream, uh, the dreams of guess how many cellmates? Two. Remember, he had two dreams. He goes on and he interprets two dreams, and um, that was of the baker and the cupbearer who were locked up um, for, for particular reasons, and uh, we'd find out who was guilty, and Joseph has dreams, and those dreams were interpreted correctly, and one of them was executed, he was hanged, and the other was um, let, and, and let go and set free, and he says, look, when you're set free, would you please remember me? Put in a good word for me. Okay, that was the cupbearer, but he did not remember Joseph, and um, until... Um, a couple of years later, Pharaoh has two strange dreams. And then all of a sudden, um, when all these soothsayers are brought in, no one can interpret the dreams. The cupbearer scratches his head and he says, hey, I remember this young Hebrew fella. He's locked up in prison. He's a dream um, interpreter. So he interprets these two dreams of Pharaoh. Remember, one of those dreams was, you know, seven gaunt, ugly cows were, were eating and devouring seven healthy, healthy um, huge cows, and it represented seven years of incredible plenty, followed by seven years of very severe famine. So, Joseph rises to eminence. He's second in power over all of Egypt, only under Pharaoh himself. Jump forward to chapter 42. After seven years of plenty, just as Joseph had foretold, a severe famine hits the land, and we read that it's severe numerous times throughout the Joseph account. Global warming people would have had a field day with this. <laughs> anyway, verse 1. <laughs> is, it, is it not ridiculous? If you're a global warming person, just remember, if you read Peter's prophecies, things heat up towards the end. Just remember that. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you sit around and look at one another? Verse 2, go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. That's how severe it was. The brothers go. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves down before him with their faces to the ground. This is the first of many bowings, by the way. And Joseph, verse 8, recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. So what will he do? Ah, sweet revenge. Right? Off with their heads. No. Instead, he, he comes up with this complex plot. And first, and this is all, all these plots are to reveal what's really in them. 
This is what God does with us. Not to show him anything, but he reveals to us what's really in us. So he puts them through these tests, and first um, he accuses them of being spies. This is not irrational, by the way. This is very common, or was very common, still is today, from what I understand, during times of great famine. Um, There are what is referred to as raiding parties. Raiding parties typically come seeking to buy, but instead they take. The raiding party is preceded by a group of spies. They go in and they look for a point of vulnerability. And then they come back and they attack with violence and they take. So he accuses them of being spies. They respond, whoa, 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 master. We're we're, we're just a domestic family. We're 12 brothers, get this now, we're 12 brothers of one man. Um, One is gone and the youngest is back home with our daddy. True as far as they knew. One is gone. True as far as they knew. So Joseph, he takes advantage of the situation. Verse 19, notice, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined here while you're in custody, where you're in custody. Now, he locked them up for three days. Biblical symbology, right? Symbology, rather. Biblical symbology. Three days. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And then immediately, theologically, they begin to surmise what? God has done this to us. This is what is called you reap what you sow, right? Verse 21, notice, then they said to one another, in truth we're guilty concerning our brother in that we saw his distress, the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. Now we don't hear anything about begging until 22 years later. Joseph was begging for his life. Notice, that is why this distress has come upon us. Like it was yesterday, right there in their heads, something that happened 22 years ago. So th- there is no secular assumption possible in their minds. This is divine. This is what you call a theistic worldview right here. God has done this. Verse 23, now notice this. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. In other words, he's speaking Egyptian, they're speaking Hebrew, and he knows everything they're saying. He's pretending he doesn't. He has an interpreter there, right? So Joseph, he goes on to give orders to his servants. He says, look, I want you to fill their bags with grain and all the money that they brought down here to purchase grain, I want you to put all that money back in their saddle sacks and send them away. And then notice the paranoia in verse 28. So they they make a stop, and uh, they want to fodder up their donkeys. And one of the brothers says, my money, verse 28, my money's been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. Their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this? God has done to us. Isn't this a great story? 
Just love it. Okay, so Joseph, he, he runs them through a series of tests, again, to see where their hearts are at. He, he sends them home, keeps one there, bring back my brother Benjamin. That's going to be a test for the father. And Benjamin returns. He gives them a great feast. He shows Benjamin special favor, chapter 43, verse 34. He gives him more than everyone else. They still have no idea who he is. And then he's going to send them back home. He has one of his servants take his own silver cup. He says, I want you to go place this in the youngest one's sack. And then they're no sooner out of town, and Pharaoh, or, uh, I'm sorry, Joseph has them arrested and brought back. Unload it, boys. Whoever has and whoever's holding the silver cup will be thrown into prison. It's in Benjamin's sack. They tear their clothes. They're broken. They're tormented. Our father, we promised him we bring Benjamin back. They're terrified. And then, chapter 44, a great exchange takes place. Judah offers himself in the place of Benjamin as a substitution. See the picture? You see the gospel picture? He offers himself up as a substitution for young Benjamin. This is the gospel on display. And let me say, only the irresistible work of the Holy Spirit can possibly begin to explain the transformation in Judah's life. Because if you go home this afternoon and go read chapter 38, you will remember the kind of crooked guy this was, and that it seemed as though God was going to annihilate his line, the, lion, the line of Judah. The promised line. He has two sons. They're both wicked. What does God do? He kills them both. One of them is left, leaves a widow behind, Tamar. Later, Judah's wife dies. And by the time the third son grows into adulthood, he's not given to Tamar. Tamar's bitter. She takes off her widow's clothes. She puts on prostitute's clothes. When she finds out Judah's going north to shear his flocks, she poses as a prostitute. She's not a prostitute. He approaches her. And he says, hey, I'd like to be with you tonight. He impregnates her with twins. She says, how do I know that you will bring what you promised me? One of the goats from his flock. He says, um, well, I'll leave you with my staff and my cord and my signet ring, and, and I'll go get the goat, and, and I'll bring him back. When he goes, she leaves. She's pregnant with twins. Two months later, someone says to Judah, Judah, your daughter-in-law is pregnant by immorality. What does Judah say? Just like we heard last week, David, bring her out. We're going to burn her at the stake. She comes out with the staff, the cord, and the signet. To whom these belong is the man by whom I'm pregnant. In spite of Judah, it looks like God's going to annihilate his line. When you get to the genealogy of the incarnate Son of God, whose names show up? Tamar. And one of the sons, Perez. God's sovereign? 
This man offers himself in the place of Benjamin concerned for his father. My father will die of heartbreak if Benjamin doesn't come home. He stands in his place as a substitution. Willingly, self-sacrificial love on display for the sake of his father who will probably never love him like he loves Benjamin. He lays himself down for the one his father loves. See the picture? Now, we're shown through Joseph in three parts the revelation of his identity, the revelation of his theology, and the revelation of reconciliation. That is, the revelation of Joseph's identity, the revelation of his theology, and then the revelation of their, the brothers, reconciliation. Okay, that, that, that's the scene, and this is where we are. Notice, through the grace, gift of forgiveness, the revelation of Joseph's identity, chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself. Why? Because of what Judah just offered to do. Step in as a substitute for Benjamin. Then he could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard about it, basically. They heard about it. Word got out. So on the, on the heels of Judah's emotional plea on behalf of Benjamin, Joseph, he can't contain himself. He, he's uncontrollably broken by joy. He orders everyone out. And notice verse 3, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You think? You think. They're traumatized. This is terror and quivering fear. He speaks to them now in Hebrew. How do we know? Because he just ordered everyone out of the room, which would have included the translator. He speaks to them in their native tongue. I'm Joseph. I am Joseph. And then the very next thing he says, notice, is my father still alive? Now, he's already asked them on a, few, on a couple of occasions, is your father still alive? Now he says, is my father still alive? In other words, is our father sane? He knows he's alive. Is he sane or is he senile? Will he recognize me as his son? Will he recognize me when he sees me as his long lost son? Will I be able to have communion and fellowship with my father? Is it beautiful? And he wants to know, is my father strong enough to make this journey? So rather than, because of what you did to me 22 years ago, now you're going to pay? Instead, verse 4, notice, come near to me, please. 
come near to me. You've offended me. You left me for dead, basically. Come near to me, please. You know, within many families, there'll be years of, she did this to me. Years of, he did that to me. Years of, he or she never did do that for me. They've never done anything for me. And then, even once the offending party hears those charges, they may come and say, I'm so sorry, I never knew. I didn't realize I hurt you like this. And even so, the offended party will sometimes sit there, arms folded, eyes rolling, refusing to forgive. Not Joseph. Come near to me, please. Back in Genesis 41, verse 51, now, while Joseph was there, he married. He had children. And and notice, chapter 41, verse 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardships in my father's house. Do we have this on the screen, chapter 41, verse 51? He may have forgotten his hardships, but I guarantee you he did not forget his father's house. You see, the revelation of Joseph's identity is the revelation of their identity, and they're all sons of the same father. See the picture? The man whom the brothers tried to kill ended up being their savior. See the picture? The man they wanted dead, the man they sold off, turns out to be their savior. They stripped him of his clothes. He gave them clothes. If you read the earlier accounts when he sends them back, he, 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 fills, he gives them clothes. They sold him for money. He gave them money. They drove him as far away from them as they could. He says to them, come near. A dramatic illustration of forgiveness. Dramatic. So that's the revelation of his identity. Next, the revelation of his theology. Joseph reveals his theology, and that is grace and sovereignty, verses 4 through 8. Here we learn how Joseph conquered bitterness in becoming reconciled to his brothers. The secret? This is a secret for us. He, He rested in Okay, he rested in the providence of God. He rested in the providence of God. What's the providence of God? The providence of God is, out, is the outworking of God's sovereign decreed will in time and in circumstance. He rested in it. Notice three times he emphasizes and reemphasizes the sovereignty of God. Notice verse five, God sent me before you. Verse seven, God sent me before you. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but what? God. Notice the emphatic nature of that. God did it. 
Friends, this passage is one of the main torture chambers of Arminianism. One of the main torture chambers of Arminianism. No Arminian could possibly say that. God did that. God did this. But notice he refers not only to the providence of God, but to the wisdom of God's providence. Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, without which you'd all be dead. And to keep alive for you many survivors. Look at Psalm 105, beginning in verse 16. Notice, when summoned, when he summoned, when who summoned? When God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them. Who sent a man ahead of them? God. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, God sent him there. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Notice, then Israel came to Egypt a.k.a. Jacob. Jacob, he sojourned in the land of Ham. Ham, the land of Ham is another uh, name for this area um, of Egypt. And the Lord, one of uh, Noah's sons went there, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes, right? Generation after generation, they grow there for 400 years. And he, God, turned their, Egypt's hearts, to hate his people. Who did it? Who did it? God did it. To deal craftily with his servants. To hate his people is referring to the 400 years of slavery Israel would bear in order to fulfill another promise given to the great-grandfather of Joseph, Abraham. Look at it, Genesis 15, verse 13. And then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain, in other words, word, your offspring will be sojourners in a land, severe famine, 70, that's not theirs, and there'll be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Well, how is all that going to come about? By me sending Joseph there. Now, did God foresee that that would happen? You know, he looked down the chasm of time, and, you know, he just foresaw, or did he foreordain that? Thank you. By sending Joseph. It came to pass. Not you, says Joseph. God sent me here. Look, Joseph out Calvin's Calvin. He out Calvin's Calvinism. Friends, our ability to forgive is also directly tied to our understanding of the sovereignty of God. 
providence. Verse 4, I am, your, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you. There you have sovereignty and human responsibility. Right there. Vody Bauckham in his book, Joseph, the Gospel of Many Colors, I cited this a number of times when we, I preached through this four years ago. He said this, Joseph doesn't attempt to alleviate the tension between God's sovereignty and man's freedom. Yes, God, God sent me here. That, quote, I quote, does not mean the brothers get a free pass on their actions. They did exactly what they intended to do without the least bit of coercion. End of quote. Right? Okay, notice, he, he, he hasn't forgotten what they did. And that, by the way, destroys a, a myth that forgiveness requires forgetting. That's a myth. Sometimes people struggle and they say, man, I'm trying to forgive so-and-so, but I guess I haven't forgiven so-and-so because I can't forget what happened. What? Well, yes, since I remember, I guess that means I haven't forgotten. Says who? Bakum also points out, if you forget, there's something wrong with your head. You're not made to forget. You've either suffered a concussion or dementia is setting in. As a creature made in the image of God, you're not made to forget. Well, God forgets our sins. Look, when we read about God forgiving our sins and casting them into the sea of forgetfulness, that does not mean that he has selective amnesia. What that means is he has chosen not to bring them into evidence against us, and he never will. That's forgiveness. You're not going to be able to forget particular offenses that occurred. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's releasing them of a debt. Amen? Sometimes we withhold forgiveness towards others saying, you're just not sorry enough. You ever done that? Well, have you ever heard that? Because if you were truly sorry, you wouldn't keep doing it. For you married people, 10 years or more. Do you not continue to commit the same old offenses over and over again? That's what Jesus meant by 70 times 7. He knows that people within familial um, situations at home or here at the church, you're going to sin against one another numerous times, therefore, 70 times 7. Not sorry enough. Well, you sin against God, and you go to him and you confess that same old sin. And what do you expect? That he forgive you. Because he says he does. You mean it. I know there's different circumstances with regard to adultery and things of that nature. The Bible speaks about that. We're not talking about that right now. You're not sorry enough. That's what we're talking about. Look at Joseph's brothers. They don't even ask for forgiveness. He's already forgiven them. 
They're already forgiven. He didn't wait until they asked. Do you ask God for every single one of your sins to be forgiven? Though you're, you're forgiven positionally and forever. No, because you can't even remember them all. Amen? So here then, there's the revelation of his theology. Um, here the revelation of reconciliation. Verse 9, hurry, brothers, hurry, and, and, and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. Can you imagine this? God has made him Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near to me and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. Verses 13 to 15. The same brothers who could not speak a kind word to Joseph end up only hearing kind words from Joseph. Right here. You know, you wonder how he kept up his Hebrew all these years. You wonder why he kept up his Hebrew all these years. I'd say with the hope of reconciliation between his brothers and his father, his Hebrew family. Then we're told that Israel, look at verse 28, okay, not Jacob, but Israel, okay, his covenant name, Israel says, it is enough, my son Joseph is alive. So remember, Jacob, Israel, is being asked to lead, leave the land of promise, knowing he'll never return there again. He picks up and he moves. He's reminded of the revelation of God through the dreams of his son many years ago, and he sees firsthand the evidence of his son's eminence by the wagons that are there to bring all the family back, and 70 eventually will dwell there. Friends, reconciliation is possible only where there is true repentance that receives the outstretched hand of forgiveness. And I'll say this, chapter 45 is not here without chapter 44. You see that? All these exercises he makes them go through, what's rising up out of their hearts? He's already forgiven them. What's rising up? Repentance that will receive this hand of forgiveness. So a repentant Judah, a repentant Judah stands as a substitute in place of Benjamin, the beloved son of the father. He stands in his place. Later, one of Judah's offspring, and remember chapter 38, it seems like the line of Judah is going to be destroyed by God himself. But later through the line of Judah, one of his offspring, David, will stand in the valley against the enemy of Israel, Goliath, and he will stand as a substitute representing Israel, and he'll destroy the enemy on behalf of the people. Much later, a greater son of Judah, a greater son of David, stands in another valley, the valley of the shadow of death, and defeats greater enemies, sin and death, all through the line of Judah. On behalf of all that he represents, Those loved of the Father. Gospel over, over, and over again throughout the life of Joseph. So some parallels to conclude. 
parallels of Joseph with that of our Savior, Jesus. Chapter 42, verse 8, we read, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. As fallen sinners, we fail to recognize correctly our Creator and Jesus, his only Redeemer. You'll never, you'll never know him unless he reveals himself, amen? He recognizes us. He knows us. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus comes and says, I know my sheep. I know my sheep. The Father's given those sheep to me. I come and I lay my life down for them. I give them eternal life. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Joseph knew the sins of his brothers. He knew all the personal offenses against him. Jesus knows all your personal offenses. He knows all your sins. You can't even sit down or rise up without him knowing about it. Amen? What's the psalmist say? You discern my thoughts from afar. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. He sees the inside and out. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? They had no idea who he was. And we have no idea who God is in Christ until he reveals himself to us. Next point. Joseph spared his brothers before they, they were already spared, that is they were already saved before they realized their salvation from drought and death. The prince, as prince of Egypt, he saved them before they were conscious of their salvation. In Christ, he saved us before we're ever aware that we're saved. Amen? Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. Come near. They were heavy laden, right? The Lord's done this to us, remember? God's done this to us. We're reaping, we're, we're reaping what we sowed years ago. They were heavy laden, and he called them to himself. Jesus says what? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come where? Come to me. Joseph called his brothers into a private chamber in order to reveal himself, to reveal his identity to them. Jesus, what does he do? He calls his sheep from within the quiet chamber of the, of, of the soul. That's called the effectual what? <coughs> Call. You may have heard the gospel preached for years. You, you respond with resistance and hate. But on that day, Factual call, what'd you do? You respond. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Joseph was sold off. He was deserted by his brothers. Years later, what does he say? Why did you, how could you, you wicked sinners? 
Did he say that? No. He says, come near. I am Joseph. Jesus arrested. His disciples desert him. They split. They run. They flee. After he's raised from the dead, he sees his disciples and he says what? Where would you? How could you? Why did you leave me? Does he say that? Nope. He says, peace to you. Peace unto you. Fear not. Look, it is I. What? Come near. Touch me. Feel me. See my hands? Come. The greatest offenses received here with the greatest of grace. The greatest of grace. Amazing. Okay, think about these words. I'm almost done. Imagine, you're one of the brothers. I am Joseph. <laughs> it's, and it says, you know, he talked to them and they talked to him. And, and again, imagine that conversation. I am, I am Joseph. When, when, when the apostle Paul, when he was Saul, when, when he was on the road to Damascus, breathing threats against the church, against God's people, he is met by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he's knocked down, and he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus. And those words would transform the life of Saul, the apostle Paul. So the only three words that you and I, brothers and sisters, need to live the Christian life, it's very simple. I am Jesus, okay? And that is all that those words mean. In order to be reminded of when we're wronged, I am Jesus, look to me, look to my life. I'm your savior. I, I stood in place of you as a substitute. You've been wronged. You'll never be as wrong as I've been wronged. I am Jesus. When you don't know what's going to happen in life, when you suffer in life, I am Jesus. When you have a hard time forgiving someone, here's one, I am Jesus. I forgive you. Amazing. That's amazing grace. Friends, if you're not in Christ, don't wait to embrace him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, embrace those words now. I am Jesus. Come to me, all you who suffer and are heavy laden. You're burdened? Heavy laden? You know you're a sinner? Come embrace him now. Don't wait until it's too late because when he comes again, he's coming to slaughter. Where just the breath of his mouth will devour his enemies. Come now. Have peace. I am Jesus. In Genesis 45, Joseph was reconciling to himself his brothers, not counting their trespasses against them. In Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them.
Because of the gospel, we have been forgiven. As far as the east is from the west. Amen? Because of the gospel, we have been forgiven. We've been forgiven much. And because of the gospel, we are able to forgive much. Yes, we forgive because we're commanded to. Yes, we forgive because we're supposed to. But more than anything else, we can forgive and we're called to forgive because we've been forgiven. Amen? Come to me. Come near, says the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this glorious picture, gospel picture, all throughout the scriptures, particularly with this family that seemed so messed up, and they were. And uh, in spite of them, um, your promises are all fulfilled. So, Lord, may they continue to be so in and through our own lives as representatives of the finished work of Jesus um, to whom all this pointed forward to, for his sake, for your glory, because of amazing grace. Amen.